Hello everyone and welcome to this week's show where it's a great honour to have with me Baroness Brenda Hale and also Sir Nicholas Forward. Now, Lady Brenda Hale, Baroness Hale, was invited by the British Luxembourg Society to give the Sir Winston Churchill Memorial Lecture on Monday the 20th of November at St George's International School. She's only the second woman to have done so in their 76-year history, the first being Margaret Thatcher. And her talk was entitled The Independence of the Judiciary and Some of Its Enemies. The Right Honourable Baroness Hale of Richmond, that's the first Richmond in Yorkshire, served as President of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom from 2017 until her retirement in 2020, the first woman to have done so. Prior to this, from 2004, Lady Hale served in the House of Lords as a Lord of Appeal in Ordinary or a Law Lord the only woman to have done so. On entering the House of Lords, she was created a life peer as Baroness Hale of Richmond. Lady Hale studied law at Cambridge. In that year, there were six women, 110 men, when she went up to read law in 1963, and she came top of her year in 1966. Called to the bar by Gray's Inn in 1969, she topped the list in the bar final exams that year, and then spent 18 years in academia, became a professor of law at Manchester University. Baroness Hale was the first woman and the youngest person to be appointed to the Law Commission. Important legislation resulting from her work includes the Children's Act 1989, the Family Law Act 1996 and the Mental Capacity Act 2005. In 1994, Lady Hale became a High Court judge, later appointed to the Court of Appeal, the second woman here after Dame Elizabeth Butler-Sloss, entering the Privy Council at the same time. She's a Dame of the Order of the British Empire, a Fellow of the British Academy and holds honorary doctorates from no less than 27 universities, as well as Fellowship of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Welcome, Baroness Hale. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's great to be with you. It's wonderful to have you here with us and in Luxembourg. And your chaperone through the course of your stay here has been no less than Sir Nicholas Forward, 15 years as former UK judge at the General Court here in Luxembourg. Welcome to you as well, Nicholas. Well, delightful to be here again. Yes, again, indeed. I remember the last time you were here, you were speaking at uh, the death of our Queen. That's right, yes. Yes, I remember that and you had met her and uh, as a young oh. student yourself in Oxford, I remember. <laughs> yes, uh, the, the judges' lodgings at Oxford, that's right. Yes, but of course the focus today is Baroness Hill. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, your life in law and a little bit about you yourself as a woman with such a huge history. In the words of a friend of mine, you are law royalty. So many people know you who work in law, many more people, particularly in the UK, became aware of you (laughs) during a certain episode where you wore a spider brooch. And I think we will start at this point because you have entitled your latest book, Spider Woman. So talking about this story and explaining it to our international listeners, you started your speech last night by quoting Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who on the 18th of July, 2022, he moved the motion in the House of Commons that this House of Confidence in Her Majesty's government, detailing his government's achievements, and he declared that with grim determination, we saw off Brenda Hale and we got Brexit done. So he was referring to the decision of the Supreme Court on the 24th of September 2019, that his advice to Her Majesty that Parliament should be prorogued was unlawful and had no effect. First of all, this word prorogation, we have to explain it. It means suspension, basically, uh, rather than dissolution of Parliament. If Parliament is dissolved, it means that the whole Parliament... Uh, goes away, the members of the House of Commons are no longer members of Parliament, there has to be a general election and then there's a new Parliament that comes along. Whereas prorogation is simply to suspend the operation uh, of Parliament. But it's not the same as going into recess. Going into recess, they can still operate, they could come back any time, they could perform a lot of their functions in a recess, but in prorogation, they can't do anything. And it's usually a very short gap between the end of one parliamentary session and the beginning of the next. It's usually four or five days maximum. And why was he wrong? He was wrong because he had decided to advise Her Majesty the Queen that Parliament should be prorogued for five 
out of the eight weeks which were coming up to the 31st of October 2019, when, if nothing was done, the UK would automatically leave the European Union. And, of course, all sorts of things had to be done uh, before that happened. But he was finding Parliament rather uh, inconvenient uh, because it was making life difficult for him. Now, I'm not saying that that's why he chose to advise Her Majesty. We didn't have the evidence as to why he had done it. Uh, but that was the effect of it, that he was preventing Parliament from performing its essential functions, both of passing the necessary legislation and of holding the government to account uh, in the operation of its governmental powers. And it is completely unprecedented in modern times to have a suspension of Parliament for that length of time. And you went into detail about this as well. And of course, uh, you being president of the Supreme Court at the time, you had to talk about this and you did so with a very beautiful spider brooch, hence all of the stories and your now fame to a greater audience than perhaps you had before. Well, there was a lot of interest in the case. Of course. Obviously. Uh, I, as president, had the job of announcing and summarising our decision for the general public. But, of course, it was the unanimous decision of all the 11 justices who heard the case. So I wasn't making it up. <laughs> and it wasn't just you, as he had appointed to in, in Parliament mm -hmm. himself. Uh, now, again, a lot of your talk last night... Um, focused on the independence of the judiciary. Do you think that currently British Parliament are in favour of an independent judiciary? I'm sure they are, in theory, in favour of an independent judiciary, but I'm not quite sure how deep the understanding amongst a lot of our politicians and public is of the importance of an independent judiciary functioning quite separately from government and parliament, and upholding the rule of law. And the thing about the rule of law is that it's we are governed by laws, we're not governed by the whim or diktat of any particular individual, and those laws apply to everybody. They apply to the governors as well as the governed. Uh, and that's the part of the rule of law which just from time to time the governors find inconvenient. Uh, but it is the job of an independent judiciary not only to apply the laws to the people but also to apply the laws to the government. And as I say, that is not always popular amongst the, the governors but it's an essential part of any democracy which relies upon the law and freedom. Now, we won't uh, dwell on it too much, but Suella Braverman has been in the news in the UK a lot recently, but particularly over the last week. She is a very outspoken woman on many ideas, notably, of course, the idea that refugees coming to the UK should be sent to Rwanda. And last week, the Supreme Court ruled this unlawful. So why should somebody with her apparent legal background seem to be so aggressive in her views towards the Supreme Court? Well, Lisa, I wish you were interviewing her. <laughs> Maybe she could tell you why. Um, I, I, open invitation there. Yes, indeed. Uh, but uh, from the point of view of lawyers, judges, retired judges, she was, before she was Home Secretary, she was Attorney General. Now, it is the job of the Attorney General to give the government independent legal advice as to the legality of what they're doing. Uh, and it's also expected that the Attorney-General and also the Lord Chancellor should defend the independence of the judiciary and the rule of law. And yet, while she was Attorney-General, it was disappointing, to put it mildly, that she seemed more inclined to be attacking uh, the judiciary and the decisions of the courts than she was to defending them. She definitely gave a lecture in which she attacked quite a few decisions which she didn't like um, without any substantial legal analysis to back that up. So that was disappointing. Of course, Home Secretaries are so often uh, finding themselves uh, in uh, dispute with the, the courts. I think the 
when I was uh, in the courts, the Secretary of State for the Home Department was the uh, respondent or defendant in more cases uh, of a public law nature than any I can imagine. So, of course, they find themselves uh, in in disagreement. Uh, But usually, of course, uh, mature uh, politicians understand that this is what's going to happen and they uh, they understand it and, and they, they don't necessarily uh, protest too much. They just get on with the job and try and find a, uh, a lawful way of doing uh, things that they want to do um, and they don't tend to, to criticise the court for having found against them. So that's the disappointing thing. Mm -hmm. With her, you mentioned, of course, uh, as Attorney General, one should be giving uh, independent legal advice, of course. How does that sit with a person's political ambitions? Well, I think it's always been very difficult, uh, but the best Attorneys General have managed to do it and then moved on perhaps to another role. That's why I mentioned moving on to another role where in a way it's almost comes with the territory is one thing but it is disappointing if the law officers of the government uh, don't stand back a bit from that because it is their role at least traditionally it was their constitutional role albeit being members of the governing party to tell the governing party that there were certain things that were they shouldn't be doing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of course the governing party could go on and do it if they wanted to, but it, that was and that was really what they were for, because it was one of the ways of keeping the government within the bounds of the law. Um, yeah, and very very important as we've seen in recent years. When it comes to the talk last night, you also spoke about the fact that a lot of people in media or in politics don't have a strong enough legal understanding and you would have liked them, you would continue to like them to have stronger understanding of the legal system. Mm. That's true. Um, There used to be a stage when uh, lots of members of the House of Commons were um, lawyers. Uh, That is much less the case now because it's much more difficult to combine uh, outside work with being a member of the House of Commons, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, But it does mean that this understanding of the relationship between Parliament the government and the judiciary is not necessarily part of the ordinary equipment of uh, a member of parliament. And that seems a shame. But of course, one can take it much further back because it's not part of the ordinary education of people in schools. Do you Uh, think it should be? Well, yes, I do. And I think lots of us do. There are countries in the world uh, where it's part of the primary school curriculum to understand the basics of the constitution and i'm not talking so much about politics i'm talking about the constitution what rules are about how we are governed uh, the different organs of government what they do and what their relationship with one another is and of course that includes principles like sovereignty of parliament and the rule of law Uh, and we don't do that and so people can get through the whole way through their education with only the vaguest idea, really, mm-hmm. uh, of the whole way in which the system ought to work. I can see um, a whole future in your retirement here, a whole set of uh, children's books coming out after your latest book on, on how everything works in the legal system. Now, coming back to the talk yesterday as well, um, again, just on this, this notion of influence, it would feel that the Supreme Court is not being influenced, of course it shouldn't be, by government, but you raised the question. So you've obviously thought about it deeply. Mm. Well, it's a matter that we all uh, worry about because we know that our individual backgrounds and values, not our politics, because on the whole we don't have politics, but we do have individual characters, backgrounds, understanding. And also there are people who take a particular view of the relationship between uh, the courts, uh, what are proper questions for courts to decide and what are proper questions for politicians to decide. Which itself is a very interesting question. Extremely interesting question and not at all easy. It was in a way easier before we had the Human Rights Act because then when the courts were looking at a government decision 
to see whether it was a lawful decision or not. They were only asking, is it lawful? And has it been reached in a lawful way? They weren't asking, is it a good decision? No. Is it doing good things or bad things? Of course, the people challenging it were challenging it because they didn't think it was a good decision. But the job of the court was to be strictly uh, looking at the legalities of it all. And then came the Human Rights Act, which turned the rights in the European Convention on Human Rights into rights in UK law. And that meant that people had the possibility of asserting or vindicating or relying on their convention rights in ordinary legal proceedings in the UK. And that meant that the judges had to decide whether a public authority had actually acted or was going to act incompatibly with those rights, which brought in an element of looking at the merits of the decision. And then one had to ask oneself, well, look, some of these rights uh, can be interfered with if it is, the, the word is necessary in a democratic society uh, for a legitimate aim. But actually, it, the, the question is whether it's proportionate big word, but whether in fact it is a proportionate way of achieving a legitimate aim. Now, who decides that? Who decides it? Well, in some cases, it's perfectly okay for the courts to decide it. But in other cases, when it raises certain types of, of policy argument, well, maybe it's for government to decide it. And that is one of those areas of not dispute, but... Um, a greyness. Well, it, it's a grey, definitely grey, mm. <laughs> uh, but also um, sort of shifting understanding uh, of it, mm. not surprisingly. So there'll be some people who are readier to say, well, come on, oh, government, you have done this, and it differentiates between different groups of people. One of the jobs of the courts is to protect people from unjustified differentiation, discrimination, in other words, uh, treating people less favourably because of who they are rather than for anything, any other reason. And then you have to ask, well, have they got a good reason for doing it? And there has been a view taken that one of the things that courts are there to do is to protect the less advantaged, the less popular uh, groups, minority groups, from what may be quite popular, what may even be the wishes of the majority. But that's the whole purpose of fundamental human rights, to protect the individual against unjustified interferences with their fundamental rights. So that's a view, uh, and quite a strongly held view, uh, but on the other hand, what if the discrimination takes place in the context of welfare benefits, for example? Well, obviously, welfare benefits are very much a matter for the government to work out you know, who gets what and why they get it and um, necessarily distinguishing between different groups. <laughs> so you can take the view that anything to do with welfare benefits, the court shouldn't get interested in. Or you could take the view, well, there has to come a point for example, if the government were to say, well, we need to save money, which, of course, often is the case, and the best way to save money would be to say that um, women will no longer be entitled to retirement pensions. Now, I think one might just possibly say that that was unjustified sex discrimination. Mm -hmm. and they'd have to have a good reason for singling out women. And if their only reason was, well, it's a very good way of saving money, that really wouldn't be good enough. Now, that's an extreme example. But you can see that you can go to other examples where it would obviously be OK for them to do it. Mm -hmm. And in the middle, there is this grey area. And that's where you can obviously get uh, different judges taking different views about what, where, the, where the line is drawn. And you have to learn how to uh, talk through these arguments at length, I'm quite sure, mm. and come to a conclusion. That can't be an easy process. It isn't. One of the great things about the judicial process is that you have, obviously, to listen to all sides of the argument, 
actually you also have to read all sides of the argument but we have both writing and um, oral submissions and then you have to uh, go away and think about it you have to discuss it with your colleagues uh, and then you have to reach a conclusion and then you have to explain it and that is the great thing about judging you have to be able to tell the world why you have done what you have done and you wrote in your book which i by the way, I encourage everybody to, to go out and buy or listen, as I did, listen to literally Lady Hale reading her own latest book, I should add as well. You speak about the precision of words. And in your book, you speak about the art of writing down a judgment allows you to think about it in a different way. So talk to us about your process of when you have gone through all of the reading, all of the discussion, how you come to write what you will then talk to everybody else about. Well, yes. Of course, what you try very hard to do, at least I always did, was to be as clear as possible, to be as straightforward as possible and to be as short as possible. But some issues are not short. And who do you write to? Who is your audience? Well, the trouble is you have got at least three audiences. Um, the first audience, obviously, are the parties to the case. And Usually, of course, they're lawyers, but uh, you always hope that the parties will will read the case and understand, but they won't always. Um, second audience is the legal community generally. If you're in an appeal court where your decisions are binding on the rest of the uh, legal community, you hope that they're going to be able to understand what it is you have decided. Um, and then the other audience, which doesn't apply when you're the Supreme Court, but it does apply in any other court, is the appeal court, who might be going to hear uh, an appeal from your decisions. Um, so you've got those three audiences in mind. Um, I think I do find that law students tend to be very complimentary about my judgments. And I think that's because as law students, they can understand them. It's not so much they necessarily agree with them, but they can read them easily and they can understand them. And so I was always trying to be as clear as I possibly could. Not always succeeding, of course. Well, you're very clear in your speech as well, which is something I noticed with your talk last night and when I was listening to your book. And not everybody can speak clearly naturally, but one has to be able to speak clearly in the positions that you've held. Can you craft that? Can you become better at that? Or do you think it's something that is intrinsically necessary to do the roles that you have gone through in your life? I don't know the answer to that question, but it's interesting to speculate. I did spend 18 years as a university teacher. And of course, as a university teacher, you, you do small classes, but you also do lectures. Uh, and I, I expect that my lectures got better over those 18 years. So I got to know how you could both engage the interest of these bright young people, uh, but at the same time try and impart something to them so that they came out of the process a little bit more knowledgeable than they came in. Um, but of course, the engaging with them. Throughout my life, I've been in jobs where you're engaging with other people because as a university teacher, you're engaging with these lovely young, bright young things, um, trying to get them to think in the way that lawyers think and reason in the way that lawyers reason, um, which is not always <laughs> particularly intuitive. Um, and also, uh, as, a, as a barrister, you're engaging with the court, with the other side, uh, and as a judge, you're engaging with everybody. So you have to spend your whole time communicating. I'm trying to find the, the person. Ah, yes, it was Lord Hoffman in your book that you quoted him saying that if you want to know how a judge thinks, you find out how their university teachers taught them. So we've probably got little, you've probably got a whole population of, uh, of Brenda Hale students around, dotted around the UK and other parts of the world uh, with, with your advice. Now, I want to read some questions from a friend of mine who's a criminal barrister, Gareth Wheatman, and he wrote in to ask you some questions if it's okay. First one being, is an adversarial legal system the best way to determine the truth? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, it's very much the, the view of uh, the 
well, the people from the Anglo-American common law world, where the way of deciding cases is you get one side to put their case, another side to put their case, and let them fight it out. And in the middle is the judge who decides, or the jury, or the jury, who decides uh, where the, the truth lies. And, of course, that system very much values cross-examination. So you have witness in the witness box, tells their story, and then the other side puts, well, tries to expose the weaknesses in their story, but also puts the other side's story to them to see what they say about it. And we tend to think this is the best way of getting at the truth. But there would be another way that said, well, no, let's have a neutral person, a judge, uh, there, asking the questions, probing the answers, let a little bit of cross-examination, but nothing very much, you know, on the whole, the judge in, in charge. Because the judge is neutral. The judge is not coming at it from one point of view or the other. Um, and you are more likely to, to get the whole thing. One of the aspects is that certainly in English law, in the criminal law, although in civil law much less so, there were really quite strict rules about what you could and could not ask about, uh, particularly in a criminal trial. And so all sorts of things. I mean, when, when somebody uh, takes the oath or affirms to give evidence, they say they're going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Well, the truth and nothing but the truth, but the whole truth? No, quite often, the whole truth as they see it, or indeed as plenty of other people might see it, doesn't come out. And some of that is uh, because some of that is not admissible evidence. And so the jury doesn't get to hear the whole truth. So people who think that an inquisitorial system is better will partly think that that is because maybe it's closer to getting at the whole truth uh, than the adversarial system. So there, there are merits on each side. I can't say which is better because I only really know about one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, can I add something else to that? Um, as a trial judge, full-time trial judge, I was mostly trying family cases. And in family cases, we have never taken the view uh, that we should be too adversarial in the sense of restricting what the court gets to know. We have thought, that especially when you're dealing with the future of children, you ought to be as relaxed as possible about letting all the information come before the court so that the court can then make an in fully informed decision about what's going to be best in the future for this child or these children. So we've always been a little bit more uh, inquisitorial in the family courts than in the civil and criminal courts, but only a little bit more. Thank you. Second question from Gareth Wheatman. Supreme Court justices can potentially be appointed immediately from practice as a lawyer without having had any other judicial positions first. Does Baroness Hale feel that there are advantages to having first had judicial experience of having sat on cases at first instance in the lower courts? Well, he's right to say that. But in fact, that has, in my experience, never been the case. Almost everybody who is appointed to the Supreme Court has first been a full-time trial judge, then been a full-time Court of Appeal judge, and then becomes a Supreme Court uh, justice. There have been, in recent years, two examples of people who have been appointed without having been full-time members of the judiciary going up. One of them was uh, Lord Sumption, Jonathan Sumption, who was a top barrister. And the other was Andrew Burroughs, Lord Burroughs, who was a top academic lawyer. But both of them had done a lot of judging on the way. They had been part-time judges because in the uh, English system, and to some extent in the Scottish system, but much more in the English system, uh, we rely a great deal on part-time judges. And so at, at every level, including at the high court level, so they had both done a lot of judging uh, at different levels before they came to the Supreme Court. And my own view is that in a Supreme Court, which is sitting a minimum of five and sometimes seven, sometimes nine, on two occasions, 11, 
a variety of perspectives on a case is a good thing, not a bad thing. And so the perspective of somebody who hasn't spent or you know, most of the last sort of decades judging is probably a good thing rather than a bad thing. Thank you. And final question from Gareth. You spent nine years at the Law Commission. To what extent did your time working on law reform influence you as a judge? I think when I got to the appeal court, uh, quite a lot. Because one of the things that you do as a law reformer is that you look at things in the round. You're not just focused on this particular case. You're looking at how what you might choose to do uh, is affected or affects everything else about the law. And so you get this um, much more comprehensive view uh, of the effects of what you're doing. Whereas if you're just dealing with this person against that person, this institution against that institution or whatever, uh, you tend just to see that dispute. So it is very helpful to be able to bring in, I think both as a law reformer and as an academic, that more synoptic view of the of the system. So you can see where the case fits in to that broader view. And it also introduces you to a broader range of sources, you know, research type sources, which you can you can pray and aid in your judgment. On the whole, if it's going to make a difference, you have to tell the other side, or both sides, so that they can comment on it and say, no, that's wrong for the following reasons. But nevertheless, uh, it gives you a broader view. So I think it's beneficial. And then just going back to the uh, Supreme Court, how are justices chosen? Ah, well, when I was chosen, it was done under the old, what we called the tap on the shoulder system. So basically, the Lord Chancellor, um, who was then the head of the judiciary and a very senior member of government and a senior lawyer on the whole, would consult. He would consult the law, the existing law lords. He would consult the top judges uh, all around the UK, because the point about the House of Lords and the Supreme Court is that it's, it's an all-UK court. It's not just England and Wales, Scotland, or Northern Ireland. It's all of us. Um, and he would consult uh, and then make his recommendation, which used to go to the Prime Minister, and the Prime Minister would uh, decide and, and recommend to the monarch. Well, we changed that under the Constitutional Reform Act 2005, and now it is done by a commission. And the commission is, except in the case of the president, is chaired by the president, uh, has another top judge from whichever of the three jurisdictions the vacancy arises in, England and Wales, Scotland or Northern Ireland. And then it has representatives from the appointing commissions from England and Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. And so you could have three people who are not lawyers, not judges, although they might be, um, and only two people who are lawyers and judges. And you advertise, you say these are the competences we want, you know, and people put in applications. This is very new. Put in an application. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no taps on the shoulder anymore. No tap on the shoulder, no. And you have to put in uh, samples of your written work. And if you're sensible, you put in some judgments, but you also put in some non-extra-legal um, uh, lectures or articles or whatever uh, and then interviews interviews yes so it's an entirely merit-based um, process and then the commission makes a recommendation to the Lord Chancellor and Secretary of State for Justice it's all one person um, and they only put up one name per vacancy and the Lord Chancellor has got the uh, choice between saying yes no or maybe. In other words, you haven't yet convinced me that this person is the right person for the job. As far as I know, the Lord Chancellor has never said no and really has never formally said maybe but has just taken an awfully long time to make up his or her mind. Uh, so basically, the politicians have virtually... They, were, they ha do have some impact because they can come along beforehand and say, well, this is what we think the direction should be, you know, specialism or whatever. Um, but they don't, they don't rule the roost. On we the, think that's great. We think that's a good way of doing things. 
On the yes, no, or maybe it's reminding me of another quote from your book by Mohammed Al-Fayed, where he gave three responses in a trial, which was no, I don't remember, or it's a possibility. Can you give us a couple of lines on this? Well, it was very funny. Um, this was an, it was an appeal um, because uh, Al-Fayed had accused a member of parliament of taking money in brown envelopes in return for asking questions in Parliament. And the Member of Parliament had sued Alford, uh, because clearly this is defamatory, uh, and the Member of Parliament had lost. Uh, and he'd lost because another example of his doing exactly that, which was irrefutable, had come to light quite late in the trial. It's all very dramatic. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but he had appealed principally... I mean, he was trying to attack the verdict, but basically he was trying to attack the award of costs against him. And he appealed on the basis that Al-Fayed had been uh, paying a gentleman called Benji the Binman. Wonderful name. A wonderful name. And he made a speciality of going round outside the offices of various, including lawyers, but all sorts of people, and just looking in their rubbish to see whether there was anything that might be valuable to somebody. And so he had gone through the rubbish outside barristers' chambers and found stuff that he thought might be useful, early drafts of witness statements and so on that he thought might be useful to... Before people. shredders were <laughs> available. Well, maybe before shredders or maybe when people didn't think you know, didn't think it was it would matter. And so uh, he had sold this, this to Alfired's... Um, uh, minions. Alfred, of course, denied that he had anything to do with it. Uh, but yes, he was uh, he was asked, uh, uh, as you said, he, he had these various questions, um, no or I don't remember, or it's a possibility. And eventually he was being cross-examined by counsel for the Member of Parliament, uh, who said, uh, Mr Alfred, when you say it's a possibility, do you mean yes? To which Alfred said, surprise, surprise, it's a possibility. And I'm afraid everybody in court fell about with laughter. It was one of the funniest occasions that I can recall in a I, court. I can imagine. And and again, just uh, thinking about what you've sat through and listened to, you have done so much work, um, one might call it feminism, to make the lives of women better through changes in the law. You've spoken about the need for a woman to be seen and to have a place in the various positions you've held in order to see from a different perspective, to see what needs to be changed. What other parts of society do you think needs to be seen to have a place? Well, the most obvious example are uh, people from visible minorities, ethnic minorities. And we are still serious. We made a lot of progress uh, with appointing women to the bench at all levels. Um, We've still not got quite far enough, but a huge amount of progress. But we have an awful lot of able uh, lawyers who come from a variety of ethnic uh, backgrounds. And we haven't seen the same uh, development in their representation uh, in the judiciary. We haven't yet had a person of colour on the Supreme Court, for example, when you think the proportion in the population is such that one might expect that. We've only got one senior um, person of colour in the um, in the Court of Appeal, although it, that is beginning and the High Court is beginning, but it's only just beginning. And there hasn't been a lot of progress. There has been some progress with people of South Asian heritage. I say heritage, they're probably British. three, four <laughs> generation British, of course. But there has been very little progress with people of Afro-Caribbean or African heritage. And that is very unfortunate because mm -hmm. people of that heritage are overrepresented on the other side of the justice system, well, the criminal justice system. And so we need the judiciary to be much more reflective of, of society and to bring the perspective that it brings, the understanding that it brings mm -hmm. of where people are coming from. So we've got work to do on that. On the point of the the, the feminism and, and what you've gone through in your life, another lovely part of your book, which I loved, was uh, when you said grace 
in Latin, you did the Gretchen version with the feminine clauses. So mm. I, th I thought that was... Uh, and then you've had to talk in your book about what happens when you become a dame versus mm. sirs. And so th there was all sorts of examples. You were the first to, to, to walk through. Um, I wanted to also bring up the point of attrition in all professions, actually, when a woman has a family. Mm. It's noted, it's seen. There's no clear answer to this. But I also want to bring up at that point, I think after you had your first, your only daughter, in fact, um, the doctor said to you, if you were to have a second child, you have to think about what's best for your husband, what's best for your daughter, mm. and doubly what's best for you. I also loved that line. So, so really, the question is, it's formulated around what can women do to have a family and continue? Well, the most important thing is to have the right partner. And if one doesn't, yes, yes. how does one continue? Well, um, I say that because uh, I was fortunate enough to have a partner who was fully supportive of my going back to work after I had our daughter. And uh, I recall Ruth Bader Ginsburg saying that the most important decision she ever made in her life was to marry Marty because he was one of those um, still that generation comparatively rare men who didn't mind having a very clever successful wife um, and so that's why I say you need to have somebody who not only understands and supports and is prepared to do some of the donkey work that goes with it it's rarely absolutely equal and indeed that is the reason why I chose to concentrate on an academic life rather than staying at the bar because although I know now lots of, of successful women who have had three or four children, it's really a big struggle to be able to do that unless you have the supportive partner, the sort of practice that makes it economically viable, to, uh, and of course good childcare um, possibilities. We were very fortunate. We were able to employ uh, a, a nanny who was with us during the week but went home at weekends so we had to make sure that we could do the job as well which is also very important so there are all sorts of things that you have to do but one of the things that I've noticed is that a lot of women lawyers who are very good uh, if they are interested in in a better work-life balance they don't necessarily give up or withdraw, although some do, but they quite often these days move sideways out of self-employed practice as barristers or as solicitors and into being in-house lawyers in the public sector, you know, the government legal service, local government, magistrates, advisors, or into commerce, finance and industry, like the Bank of England um, or or any sort of commercial enterprise. They all need lawyers and regulators. There are loads of regulatory bodies. They all need lawyers. And there tends to be a better work-life balance possible in those jobs. And so that's what we find women doing. Um, and so I'm a great supporter of recognising that these are talented people and we shouldn't be excluding them from consideration for judicial posts. Uh, and I think that would also have some uh, effect on the ethnic problem uh, as well. So yes, it can be done, but it needs all the ducks to be in a row. Well, thank you. That's uh, explained it very well to avoid the problem in many professions of attrition. Um, you also mentioned, of course, a couple of times that you were in academia for a long time. And last night, and in your book, you spoke about attracting the right talent to the highest positions in, in the land, the land being the UK we're speaking about. Um, and talent attraction is hard. You brought up salaries mm. and pensions. So it depends where one is coming from. If com one is coming from the world of academia or mm. certain legal professions or the corporate sector, it may not be so attractive to financially take what might be a cut for some people. And yet it's a, a very privileged position and one of, of great import. So your question is? Is around attracting the best talent. Well, I'm not sure that everybody is motivated by money. Um, my husband always used to say, all I want is more than enough. Um, 
It's a good line. Not, I like that. It's a really good line. <laughs> yeah. Because when you think about it, as long as you have got enough to fulfill, you know, what are the needs of your household and your family and so on. And then a, a bit on top of that, just so that you can enjoy yourself or indulge yourself. That seems to me to be a really good way of looking at things. And I would say that uh, judicial salaries in the UK, on the whole, are adequate to uh, meet that criterion, unless you have lots of very expensive children. <laughs> and this can be a bit of a problem, because obviously children can be expensive, especially in the UK, if you decide that you're going to send them to independent schools, fee-paying schools, and then, of course, university education is expensive these days anywhere, but particularly in the UK. So I do sympathise with people who've been earning a lot of money in their professions uh, and then thinking that they might want to have a change and go on the bench just at the time when their children are at their most expensive. So that is a, an understandable problem. Um, but we have... There was, a, there was a serious blip when the pension scheme for judges was changed. And all the judges would talk about was pensions. So it's not surprising, really. Um, but that seems to have died down and after it was solved we got some really good people who were wanting to go on the high court bench again and i think that's still the case and so that's a very good thing so no problem there at all well i wouldn't say there's no problem all i'd say is that it's less of a problem than it than it was for a while mm. Perfect. Now, moving to you as a person, uh, again, in your book, you talk um, at length of where you grow up. Your father was a headmaster of a boys grammar school. And very sadly, he died when he was just 49 and you were 13. That must have had a huge impact on you. And I know, of course, your mother. Yes, it did. Um well, it's a, it's a huge shock, you know. Mm -hmm. In the, fact, there he was. You, you know. had the line that your mother, it's as if half of one's personality is cut off. Yeah. Well, that was my mother, mm. um, which we didn't... Obviously, there we are. We, I was 13, my younger sister was 12. Older sister was at university, so not as much. She was 20. So it didn't affect her everyday life the way that it affected our everyday life. Uh, but one's very selfish at that sort of age, and all we were thinking about, where are we going to live? What are we going to live on? Are we going to have to change schools? Are we going to have to say goodbye to all our friends? We were really, really worried about that. Uh, and our mother was, of course, totally devastated, but she did keep that from us. Uh, and she had trained as a teacher in the 30s, but she'd had to give it up when she married my father because there was a marriage bar in the teaching profession uh, in those days. And she devoted herself to uh, supporting him and running the boarding house for the school and things like that. But she dusted off her qualifications. She got herself a full-time job as the head teacher of the local village school. And that meant that we could stay in the village. We had to move house, but that didn't matter. We were in the village. We were at the same school. We were with the same friends, uh, leading much the same life as we had a mile down the road uh, in the grammar school. Such a big thing that she did. So very uh, resilient. But I think it did teach both my younger sister and me gave us a huge shock, but it taught us the importance of education, of qualifications, of resilience and independence. I don't think either of us wanted to become dependent upon a husband, basically. Mm -hmm. Nice to have a husband, but not something that one needed for one's um, position in life. An amazing example by your mother, I'm yes, quite was, sure. Yeah. I think that the word resilience, of course, and coupled with the fact that in your early childhood, you were raised amidst a boys' grammar school. So you also had that strength around you. I don't think at any point in your life you felt daunted by being around men. No. No, this is absolutely true. Although, obviously, I went to single-sex girls. Because that's I, how it that's, was that's then. That's how things, things were. Yes, I haven't reflected on the fact that growing up in a boys' boarding school might just possibly have meant that uh, the presence of um, boys, uh, teenage boys, mm. uh, was uh, was daunting. No, I think not. No, no. You've you, clearly at every point in your life you've come across as very, very strong. Another point of your life story, which I picked up on, was the fact that you grew up in the relics of World War Two, and. 
even then people were collecting rose hips to make syrup. So now I'm going out collecting rose hips because I didn't know that was very, I mean, I know about rose hip tea, but I didn't know one could make syrup from it and it's very good for vitamin C. But, but you grew up with that shadow over your childhood too. Yes, it was very apparent. I, mean, I was born in January 1945. Uh, so while I was sort of getting to grips with, with the world, there we were living in a village where there had been an airfield, a wartime airfield. There were the relics of the airfield all around one. Um, there were people who were still living in Nissan huts, uh, which were there as temporary accommodation because they'd been bombed out of, of places nearby Teesside, which obviously did have a lot of bombing. So we were very, very aware of of the war and mm. also of the fact that it was a good thing the war was no more. And I think that was part of a feeling which developed into um, an understanding of the need for international treaties, international law, a rules-based international order. It developed into that over time. But I'm sure it goes back to uh, the knowledge that really terrible things had happened in the war. And can happen. I'm afraid. When you were young, about 12, 13, you wrote an essay, I think it was for a competition, on heraldry. Yeah. And this developed many years later when you had to devise your own coat of arms. So tell us about this. Well, it was good fun. It was a, there was a, a children's magazine that was not not quite a comic, it was meant to be more serious than a comic, that was aimed at children between about 8 and 12. And they had a short story competition. And I wrote a short story which depended upon a knowledge of heraldry because I was interested in heraldry at that stage. Uh, and I won the prize, I won the competition, but I don't think they ever published the story. So I think that m maybe I was the only entrant to this competition, or maybe it was just a really silly story that they didn't think anybody would be interested in. But anyway, but that knowledge was quite useful when uh, I decided you don't have to have a coat of arms when you join the House of Lords, but obviously the College of Arms is really keen on your having one, because that... Uh, that's how they make their money. Uh, and so it was very helpful to have that knowledge of heraldry when it came to devising what the coat of arms should be. I, I love that story so much. Uh, all of the Hale sisters became head girls and only the Hale sisters married 30 miles beyond where you grew up, which I think uh, maybe is testament to, to your parents and what they instilled in you. And I'd love you to share the advice your father gave to your older sister because it was handed to you the university advice? Oh, well, my father wrote a letter to my older sister when she went off to university, uh, which she passed on to me when I went to university. And obviously I couldn't possibly just quote the whole thing, but um, it had some very good advice, you know, like... Um, well, part of it was uh, take care who you drink with. Yeah. Don't, you know, very happy for you to go drinking, but just just beware that there are people who get a lot of pleasure out of spiking young women's drinks, and so take care. It always takes more courage to refuse a dare than to take it. And then the third one was, try and find something that you can be really excellent at. Try and excel at something or other. So those were the three pieces of advice. But he also said as part of that last one, and don't fall in love. That's the one I have that's written in front of me. Exactly. I knew that's the one you would be getting at. Uh, but he said, you know, he said, I've nothing against falling in love. Uh, it's the best thing he ever did, which clearly was. Uh, but uh, university is not the place to do it. Well, I think my sister observed all of the advice apart from the falling in love, but she did find the man in her life at university. I just love this letter so much because it's ageless. Yes, it is. It's so sensible, so true. Um, so he lives on. What a very good teacher he was. Absolutely, to his three daughters. And then I also want to talk about the, the link you have with Europe because I think you were very ahead of... Well, the opportunities you got were really exceptional. And you had a European tour at around the age of 17. You spent time living and working in Europe, in fact. So talk to our audience, we are based here in Europe, about your European experience at a, at a young age. Well, that was interesting. I mean, I'm before the time when 
uh, everybody went on European sunshine holidays. That didn't happen. But my father's subject at school was Spanish. And he used why to... was that, by the way? Because oh, even that is yes, unusual. Why was, it, why was it Spanish? Because he went to Oxford and uh, his college, Wadham College, had a newly established scholarship in Spanish. And he won this scholarship in Spanish, which is why he studied Spanish. So uh, I'm afraid it was a financial reason for doing it. But of course, he was absolutely right. Spanish is the most sensible foreign European language for uh people in the UK to learn because it is spoken by so many more people worldwide. And he used to take parties of schoolboys every other year to Spain so that they could um, experience the language at first um, uh, instance, so to speak. Uh, but we were deemed too young to go on these, so we never went on those. Uh, but our headmistress was quite far-sighted, very pro-European, and so she used to enter some of her pupils for something called the European Schools Day, which was an essay competition that was run by the Council of Europe in association with the European Economic Community. Uh, but it was mainly the Council of Europe, which only had 12 members uh, then. Uh, and I put in an essay about European integration. I can't remember. I haven't got a copy of the essay. I have no idea what I said, but it must have been quite approving. Anyway, I, I won. I think I was about second. There was a group of um, uh, Brits, and I think of about 12 of us. Yeah, there would be 12 of us, and I think I, I won second prize or maybe third. Uh, so we all went off um, to Vienna to have this uh, prize giving and fun in Vienna. And then we all separated into groups with a representative from each of the countries. So I was the only Brit in this, this um, multinational group who spent a week in Strasbourg being very well looked after and entertained. It was great. But that was so brilliantly educational for me to meet young people from all of the countries in in Europe and understand. And on top of that you also spent time working a little bit like an au pair. I was an au pair, yes. yes. With an Austrian family. With an Austrian family near Vienna, yes. Yes, that was the that was after I had uh got into Cambridge and so I had 9 months uh to spare and so I spent yes. Yes. Well, that was very educational um as well. As Your well love as of music. Fun, yes. Helped my German along. Yes. So, how are your languages these oh, days? Oh, hopeless. Absolutely hopeless. I'm afraid. No. Uh, I'm really ashamed that uh, I studied French to a very advanced level when I was at school, but I never had occasion to use it or practice it. And I'm afraid if you don't use it or practice it, it does tend to disappear. So, although I can understand quite a lot of French, I'm not so good at actually getting a sentence together. Well, and you're... similarly in German, I did quite well with, obviously, with the experience of exposure to German, not only in Austria, but also I then spent a month in Switzerland uh, staying with a friend whom I'd met at the European Schools Day uh, thing. Um, and that was also very educational. And mm -hmm. I can still... I do find that uh, I can still understand quite a lot of, of German, but again, putting a sentence together... Well, just to wrap up, I just have a few more short questions, really. Um, one is that your demeanour is so positive. It seems to be so happy in the short space of time we spent together and, and just listening to you, reading about you. And yet you've dealt with having to listen to really, really hard cases. There are some examples in your book. How do you cope with that mentally? And again, of course, you've had a, you've worked on mental health as well. So, so I'm sure you've thought about this and you're part of the Psychiatrists Association, I think, as well in the UK. So how do you deal with the very tough things that you've had to sit through mentally? Well, it is tough. It is tough. And, but it's, it's very like being a doctor. Because in order to be a doctor, you have to have enough, well, to be a good doctor, you have to have enough empathy with your patient to be able to understand what your patient is saying to you, uh, what the symptoms the patient has, and also to get through to the patient what it is the patient needs to do. So you have to have that relationship. But at the same time, you have to keep your distance because as a doctor, you would go completely bananas if you lived your patients lives that would be terrible and so you have to be that 
uh, objective, uh, neutral outsider when you are deciding what to do. And I don't think it's any harder than it is for a doctor. I think it's probably a bit easier because the formality of court proceedings is such as to introduce some distance between you and the people, but you still need to try and understand them. You really do, especially as family judge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very important to see how people are interacting. Do you play chess? No, my husband played chess. Yes, that's why I'm asking. No, he no, he I... played it to a very high level. He used to say that uh, he started off a first-class player in a third-rate country, but then uh, the UK, well, England, got really, really good at chess, and so he became a third-class player in a first-rate country. But he travelled playing chess. Yes, he used to go and play European um, seniors tournaments, either as individuals or as teams, yes. Just before lockdown, he was in Prague. um, What's your equivalent hobby? Oh, dear, oh, dear. What's my equivalent hobby? Hmm, not sure. Um, you have time to find one now. Well, I do. Uh, I'm Obviously, I do reading. I like going to the theatre. I like going to opera. I like, um, I like all sorts of going and learning about things that I don't know anything about. This is always very useful. I like doing jigsaws and I like doing Sudoku. Very good for the mind. Yes. You have a very healthy mind. And actually, just the final word on the fact that your daughter is exceptional in her own right. So apart from your own stellar career, you've raised a daughter, Julia Hoggett, who is the CEO at the London Stock Exchange. You must be very proud. I'm enormously proud of her. And it was wonderful last week when she was given the freedom of the City of London uh, in the presence of the then Lord Mayor with a large audience of enthusiastic supporters from the Stock Exchange and elsewhere in in the um, London city, in the Square Mile, uh, who actually cheered, you know, which I don't think often happens in the Mansion House. So I'm not only proud that she has this job, I am proud that she's so popular and obviously well-respected in doing the job. And from photos, she emanates strength and character. You can just see it transferring across the page. Uh, Lady Hale, it's been an honour to have you here. I must bring you in, Nicholas, because you sat there as quite the gentleman. Have you have you any questions yourself or, or thoughts? No. Uh, well, one, one thought ha- has occurred to me, and uh, just coming back to a theme that um, uh, Lady Hale pre- presented uh, yesterday evening, which is this: uh, the problem about... Uh, the respect for the judges. And I think it was uh, um, one of the Supreme Court justices in the United States who made the point that amongst the three branches of government, the judiciary, the legislature, and the executive, the one branch without any power, any formal power, is the judiciary. The... (laughs) The Parliament or the uh, Congress has the power of controlling the finance, the executive controls the armed forces, and the only real power, I think this was Justice Stephen Breyer, the only real power that uh, the, the judiciary have is the respect and the support amongst the population for its decisions. And an inherent part of that is the need to respect judicial independence. And I think we were reminded uh, last, last night that how we have recently seen in Israel tens of thousands of people on the street supporting uh, the independence of their Supreme Court, which is perceived to be under challenge from Netanyahu. And I think one of the concerns that uh, I know Lady Hadel expressed last night and coming back to what she said earlier about the importance of uh, having people uh, as part of their education to understand what the independence of the judiciary, uh, why it's important, is precisely for this reason. Mm. The only ultimate uh, strength that the judiciary have is uh, if its independence and respect for its decisions is a part of the, the DNA of, of every citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, and which is why, and one knows in Germany, the Grundgesetz is all part of uh, the, mm. the, the education and so on. Uh, and I think we need to be very careful. And I think 
part of what has caused some of the problems, particularly at the political level, uh, which uh, were mentioned earlier, is that that feeling of uh, that, that's something missing at the moment. And I think we need to be very careful about that. That's my, my little contribution. Absolutely true. I couldn't yeah. agree more. And it, it, it does, it, it's important that people like you and me, Nicholas, are prepared to put ourselves out there and talk about it. Uh, because such influences we might have, uh, it's important that we put it to the right use, isn't mm, it? It is. Well, you're welcome here any time to do so. Again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming to Luxembourg. Thank you to the British Luxembourg Society for, for finding you and encouraging you to come here. I know they did a lovely job last night. So thank you to also Sir Nicholas. Thank you to Darren and to Louise. I know she's a fellow Gertonian and, and a lawyer herself. So she was deeply, deeply proud uh, to have you uh, with us last night in Luxembourg. Thank you so much and have a wonderful lunch at Circle Munster. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.